Hello and welcome to another episode of Tots. I'm your host, Ben Gardner. Today on the show, we have Kevin Hines. He's a mental health activist, a suicide prevention advocate, a filmmaker, and the author of the new book, The Third Rail. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Nice to meet you. Absolutely. Good to meet you, too. So I found your story on YouTube, which I think a lot of people have. Uh, but as soon as I started digging a little deeper, I noticed that your story is literally everywhere. Uh, you have a, a huge reach and you've been doing a lot of outreach through your foundation. Um, and I just heard your story and was immediately blown away. And I thought, OK, I need to have this guy on my show to tell his story. So why don't you start off by telling me about yourself, what you're doing now and what inspired you to do what you're doing now? Absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, where do I begin? I was born in severe poverty. My birth parents, as I'm adopted, succumbed to drugs and alcohol after they've been diagnosed with manic depression, which they call bipolar disorder. That would be the very same brain disease I'd be diagnosed with at 17 years of age. And that diagnosis would lead me and the struggles it, 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 it uh, personified would lead me to attempt to take my life in the year 2000 by way of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. I was in desperate pain. I was in what I call lethal emotional pain. I believed I was useless. I felt I was worthless and I thought I had no value. In fact, I thought my family believed I was their greatest burden and they, they wanted me to die. Thus is the nature of lethal emotional pain and suicidality. And it's a hard topic to get right into, but it's so important that we talk about it and talk about how it affects millions of lives around the world. Not just in the way uh, for, for the people that attempt or, or pass away by suicide or die by suicide. But those that are left behind are forever haunted by what happened and the guilt and the shame that comes along with such a tragic ending uh, devastates families, destroys them, uh, destroys friendships and kinships, brotherhoods and love lives. And it, it, it you know, dying by suicide is, is unlike any other means of death. It seems so very personal. And I want to help people understand that that suicide is never the solution to our problem. It is, in fact, the problem. And that we deserve to live this life until our natural end, never to die by our hands. I couldn't see the forest through the trees when I was in so much pain. In the year 2000, when I attempted, I always say I only felt, saw, touched, heard, and knew pain. And it was so overwhelming. But my biggest mistake, and this is what I want to help people with, my biggest mistake was being silent in that pain. If your listeners and watchers and viewers are going to learn one thing from me today, and one thing alone, it's this. When you go about the rest of your day and the rest of your natural lives, Never again silence your pain. Your pain is valid. Your pain is worthy of my time and others. And your pain matters simply because you do. 
when we bury or silence our pain, it like bubbles until it grows and it festers and then it bursts in things like rage, aggression, violence, substance use disorder, and suicidal thoughts, ideas, and actions. But if those of us who become suicidal can recognize in times of suicidal crisis through self-awareness techniques that our thoughts don't have to become our actions, then we can always survive the pain. As in our thoughts don't have to own, rule, or define what we do next. They can just be our thoughts. And that's how I've lived for the last 20 years. I live with regular thoughts of ending my life, but I'll never die by suicide. I'll never take my life. Someone tells you Kevin Hines died by suicide, open it all out investigation because it was a murder. It's never going to happen. Because A, a I, I, I use positive self-affirmation when I have negative self-talk, and I reverse my negative inner critical voice. But B, because I finally realized my true value and that I am worthy of this life. And I realized that fighting the suicidal ideations was where I needed to be. When I went to the Golden Gate Bridge on September 25th, 2020 years ago, last September, and I stood on that rail and I leaned my body over that, that four foot nothing rail that ease of access to lethal means. And I cried my tears to the waters below. All I wanted was for one person to see me and say something kind. Hey, kid, are you okay? Brother, is something wrong, pal? Can I help you? I would have told them everything and begged them to save me. Bikers, joggers, tourists, runners, police officers who were searching for suicidal people, they all went by me twice. I was there for 40 minutes, crying like a baby. And the only person to approach me asked me to take her picture several times. And I think back now, I think, well, maybe, maybe she was trying to show me something beautiful and I missed it. Or maybe she just didn't see my pain. She had these giant sunglasses on, dark sunglasses on. Maybe she just didn't see my pain. And that's how most people go about their lives. Most people who don't have mental afflictions don't pay attention to those who do. And they don't even ask their strong friends how they're doing. Because a lot of the times there's our strong friends that are really hurting inside. And I think if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we need to be on video chats and calls with as many of our loved ones as humanly possible on a regular basis to keep that social connection. Physically isolate, physically disconnect, fine, for, for, for pandemic reasons, but socially connect through social media or through uh, video chat of any kind. Have a conversation with someone who, who you know needs to hear your, your voice of kindness and compassion and empathy. You know, um, I'm doing a project right now on elderly suicide. And elderly suicides are more prominent than youth suicides, but youth suicides are all people talk about. Because people have forgotten the elderly. They've, they, 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 they think that depression and mental struggles are just a natural way of life for as you grow older, but they don't have to be. You know, last month I did a project on youth suicide prevention. Um, this month I'm doing a project 
on in the general population. Next month, it's males. The month after that, it's veterans. So I'm constantly trying to work in the field and do projects that affect different populations and different socioeconomic backgrounds um, to try to reach people of all kinds. You know, you know I'm, I'm mixed. I'm part black, part Jamaican, Arawak Indian, Portuguese, Scottish, Irish, English, and Sephardic Jew, and Mexican and Italian on my dad's side. And I, 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 I identify with all those, all of that background. And, and the struggles of, of those individual peoples. And, you know, I, I remember being in grade school and at, at St. Cecilia's, I, I hate to name drop, but, but I remember being there in San Francisco and the eighth graders, specifically the eighth grade white males, beating me up, putting me in trash cans upside down and saying that's what I was because I was part black. I remember them calling me the little red N-word every day. It was heartbreaking. It was mind-numbing. And I, I have to tell you that part of what led me to go to the Golden Gate Bridge was all the hurtful, spiteful, hateful, racist, prejudiced things that had ever been done to me or said to me. You know, that, that played a role in my clinical depression. Right. You know, going to the Golden Gate was the culmination of, at that point in time, 19 years of pain. Sure, I had a great childhood because I was adopted by a beautiful family and given a beautiful life, but I, I, had, I had trauma from the get-go. Born in severe poverty, birth parents on drugs and alcohol, taken, forced into foster care, bounced around from home to home, home, home to home, Lost my brother in, in one of the homes. He died. We both got bronchitis and he died. Why did I live? You know, that pain has been with me since the beginning. That's why I, I'm so into comic books. I love comic book characters because of the way they become the heroes of their own story versus the victims. Um, and I look, I look at Deadpool in a sense because he was born in pain and so was I. And when I was saved by a sea lion in the water, a sea lion literally came to my aid, circling beneath me, bumping me up, keeping me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived. Wow. You can't make that stuff up. You know, I, I would have drowned if it wasn't for a mammal that doesn't speak my language, you know? Right. And, and you know, in the... In the, in the 20 plus years since my attempt, or in the 20 years plus since my attempt, I'm just trying to give back. I'm trying to give back to right. people who are in the same pain I was in, but need that light at the end of the tunnel. They need something to spark them and say, you can do this. And suicide is not the answer. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredibly powerful story. And so... Going back a little bit to to that attempt, I've heard you speak on this many, many times. And I think the one phrase that always sticks out to me is where you're talking about the instant regret mm. that you felt as soon as your hands left the rail. So why was it that when you're there and you're standing and you're you're really convinced that this is the right move and you're about to attempt suicide, why? Was it then only after you had 
begun that attempt that you realized that this was the wrong thing to do? So that's the million dollar question and I have the answer. So of the, well, okay, 98% of those who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge never again get to tell their stories. They're gone. They're dead. Less than 2% survived that fall in 85 years of that bridge being opened. 26 of them remain alive today. Many have died of natural causes. Of those 26, the majority, 19 have come forward to say they all had the same instantaneous regret that I did. It's instinctual. Because in the moment where you believe you are going to die, not in the moment of the attempt, the attempt is coming from a place of compulsion. You are compelled to die by your hands because of your pain. It's overwhelming. It's lethal emotional pain. You feel like it's never going away and you want it to end. What is one thing you want to happen when you find yourself in excruciating physical pain? You want the pain to stop, go away or end. Brain pain is 300,000 times worse, but nobody talks about it. And so the reason so many people have recounted instantaneous regret. And by the way, it's not just the Golden Gate Bridge. It's methods of all kinds all around the world. People have recounted that when they survived their suicide attempt, they had instantaneous regret or instant regret because they thought they were going to die. It's a flight or, fight or flight reaction. But it's also because they recognize that their thoughts didn't have to become their actions and they think it's too late. And they go, well, I did it. I'm going to die. I don't want to. What have I just done? If we can teach people before they get to the suicidal crisis that their thoughts don't have to become their actions, then we can always keep them alive. They can always survive their pain. And that's how I've done it for 20 years. Every time I'm suicidal, I turn to my wife and I say four simple but effective words. I need help now. And she's always going to help me. And I've been in places like airports where my wife wasn't there and I needed help. And I've said to TSA agents, I need help now. And they say, what's up, buddy? And I, I let them know I'm not well mentally and I'm, I'm suicidal. I missed my flight that day, but they protected me and kept me safe. And I went to a hospital and here I am. People fear asking for help due to the marginalization of those living with mental struggles, which is very real. It's a great prejudice against us. We are looked down upon. We are looked upon as crazy. That's a horrible term to someone who is. We're looked upon as less than, weak, pathetic. And the reality is if we just teach our loved ones that there is great strength in asking for help, a lot more of us would survive the pain. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, like, to me, all of this is incredibly powerful because I think most people know somebody that has at least attempted suicide or committed suicide, and it's something that is so taboo, and we don't really talk about mental health the way that we should in this country. Um, I've been diagnosed with anxiety, ADHD, Tourette's. Uh, I have a slew of things and I recently opened up about some of these things on this show, and it was incredibly powerful for me to be able to talk about those things because, again, nobody does. And I think once you're able to start that discussion, 
people start to kind of click and it's they start to get it. They're like, oh, other people are going through similar things to me. Other people have different struggles than me. But again, especially in this country, we have a huge taboo against talking about mental health. And if you go and seek out mental help, you're seen as less than. So I guess my next question to you is, how do we go about fixing that system, not just in terms of, you know, societal taboos and and culture and things like that, but how do we also start putting into place, you know, bills that are going to get this kind of stuff done that are going to create, you know, more centers or better centers? How do we get the funding there? Because at the end of the day, those are also things that, you know, need to be done in order to kind of change this awful outcome. There's a great way to get involved legislatively um, for mental health, and it's called Hill Day. Every year, well, pre-COVID, every year, uh, the National Council for Behavioral Health holds Hill Day on Capitol Hill, where mental health lobbyists, storytellers, lived expertise experience, advocates like myself, they go to the Capitol and they advocate for every mental health law and bill they can they can they want to be a part of. And they do this uh, by going into the offices of their senators and their congressmen and, and women and individuals. And they plead their cases and a lot of these bills get passed due to these stories that are being told. So look out for the National Council, Google that, uh, and, um, and, and, and try to be, become a part of change. You know, when m- my father founded the Bridge Rail Foundation after the film The Bridge came out, and that, that foundation's sole purpose is to raise a net at the Golden Gate Bridge, and I'm proud to announce that we worked tirelessly for 14 years and plus, maybe maybe 16 years now, and as of 2023, the net will be in place. It's being built right now, and as of 2023, not one more beautiful life will be lost to the Golden Gate Bridge, and it will then become the largest and brightest beacon for suicide prevention all around the world. And that that's was amazing. Through, yeah, that was through legislative a- activity, um, and you know, after we did that, you know, when I saw the film. Eric Steele made called the bridge that that, that that my father and I were a part of, and we got to be a ten minute feature in, um, and 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 the film didn't tell you what to think, it just said, why isn't anybody doing anything about this? It didn't tell you if you should or shouldn't. It just showed you that nothing's being done. People are dying every seven to ten days off the Golden Gate Bridge. You decide if this is right or wrong, and people stood up and they made it. They made a difference. And after I saw that film, I knew I wanted to make films. I knew I wanted to be a part of filmmaking for change. And so my wife and I and, and my wife and I and a man named Greg DeCherry, um, we we uh, made a movie called Suicide the Ripple Effect. And that film has been seen by over a million people in 20 plus countries. And it's about, it chronicles my life story. We travel around the world sharing stories of hope, um, healing and recovery from mental struggle. Um, and then after that, we, 
launched a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, which now has amassed 500 videos plus all designed to better people's brain health and well-being and change their lives if they just work with the video suggestions and helping tips to better their brain, mind, mental, physical, and spiritual health. You know, right now uh, we launched a playlist uh, uh, called uh, Mental Health Hacks, and we're launching 24 episodes in the next five months every Friday. And these are mental health hacks that anyone can do. They're not, they're not clinical. They're things anyone can do to better their, their brain health. They're for everyone. They're for you. Take them, they're yours. And they're free. You know, uh, we, we want people to, to put the strength in their own tool belt, take it home, use it, and absolutely change their lives. Yeah, I mean, that's that's amazing. And uh, we will definitely include the links to all of these in the show notes so that you guys can check them out. So going from where you were and then what you started to do to prevent people from committing suicide, what has been your biggest victory along this journey and, and how did it come about? The biggest victory, I think, for, I think it has to be a personal one. Marrying the love of my life, my wife, Margaret Hines. And I say that not to diminish anything that's happened, the, the accomplishments that have been awarded and things like that. that that's all great stuff. And I, and I really am appreciative of all the accolades that I've received, like the awards I've been given for the work I've done. But, but that's not why I do it. I think that for me, meeting my wife in my third psych ward stay, her befriending her and, and, and her accepting me for exactly who I am and who I'm not, really opened my mind to show me that anyone can find hope in the darkest of tunnels, light in the darkest of tunnels. And Margaret, my lovely wife, has saved my life on more times than I can count on my appendages. And she does it with a smile on her face. That's my greatest accomplishment, is her being my partner in life, my best friend, and my heart. That's awesome. That's beautiful. I think a lot of people don't understand. And, and I think this also leads into, you know, suicide and things like that, that they do have people usually in their corner and they do have people that they can reach out to that will support them and will help them. And maybe even if they don't have that in their personal circle, there are certainly resources that people can reach out to uh, in, in order to get that help. And I think, you know, it's exactly like you said. The first step, and and I think the most important step, is just being able to ask for that help. Because, I mean, as soon as you do that, it opens up a world of other options for you and possibilities. Absolutely. And for those watching today or listening later, you know, and if if you're contemplating suicide and you live in America, please text CNQR to 741-741, the crisis text line, 
that CNQR stands for Courage to Talk About Mental Health. N stands for Normalize the Conversation. Q stands for Ask the Questions. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? Do you have the means? R stands for Recovery. Living Proof. I'm living proof that you can recover and find hope and healing and, and a life well lived. I follow a routine every day. In that routine, I exercise, I eat healthy, I, I educate myself as to my diagnosis, I meditate, I take medication, um, but I work really hard to stay stable, and you can too. Make no mistake about it, it takes hard work. You're not going to find a magic pill, you're not going to find a magic workout, you're not going to find magic yoga to fix your mental health. It <laughs> takes work. And if you're willing to put in the work, hard work, because nothing good ever came without it, if you're willing to put in the work, you will succeed. Um, there's a there's a, a another playlist on my YouTube channel called Series Colon The Art of Wellness. It's my 10-step guide to better brain health, better mental well-being. It's been used by thousands of people, and people as far as Peru, Africa, China, Japan, uh, all throughout America, the UK, Canada, have said that it's helped to dramatically change their mental health for the better. Take it, it's yours. Yeah, I mean, that that's awesome. And we again, we will absolutely include that in the show notes for everybody listening and watching so that you are able to access that as well. So, Kevin, this has been fantastic. Tell me a little bit about your book, The Third Rail. What's in it? When is it coming out? Where can people find it? So you want to go, well, first of all, The Third Rail, In My Mania, I Became, is a book co-written by my friend Jesse Cohen and myself. Um, we started writing the book a couple of years ago, uh, but once again, The Third Rail, uh, when Jesse was really fighting for his life mentally. And tragically, Jesse would, would die by suicide. He was a brother to me. He was family. And... When he told me his story, I knew I had to get it out to the world. And so we, my wife and I, his widow, finished the book along with a great editor um, and, and along with uh, Brandy Benson, who helped us put it all together. So shout out to Brandy. We worked really hard to, to, to bring it to light. And it will be available. It's available right now for pre-sale. It's available on, uh, on April 15th. Um, and on Amazon, you can get the, the paperback book, the, the, you know, the, the, you can get the physical book or you can get a, a Kindle version. Um, and if you just go to the third rail book.com, the third rail book.com, and that's three num number three RD, the third rail book.com. You can find everything you need to know about how to get that book and get it signed by me. It's an incredible story. Awesome. Jesse was a Jesse was a Tulane law student in the in the 90s in Louisiana during the height of the crime era and 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 during the height of organized the organized crime era in Louisiana and he in his mania he became a vigilante against criminals and lived this wild wow. extraordinary life. It, it was it's the stuff of legend that he did and it's and and it's um it's based on his life story, and it is absolutely a fascinating read. You'll read the book within two hours. You won't put it down. It sounds like a good damn book. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I'll, I'll gladly send you a copy for review if you'd like. That would be great. I would really appreciate that. Yeah. Kevin, if there is one thing that you want people to remember from this interview or your life story or anything that you have done, accomplished, achieved, what is it? You know, it's not about me. I would say if there's anything I want you guys to remember out there who are listening and watching, just remember how beautiful you are. Remember how important you are, how valued you are, loved, crucial to this world. And remember that no matter how you feel, suicide is never the answer. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And hopefully you guys listening at home got something good out of this because I think everybody needs to understand and know every once in a while that you are special, you are beautiful, and you do matter. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you again. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Guys, if you want to listen to more episodes of TOTS, you can do that at our website, totspodcast.com. You can also find us on every single music and podcast streaming app. Our big three are Spotify, Apple, and Google. Definitely check us out there. You can watch us on YouTube. Just search TOTS Podcast. And please follow our social media. We have Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. You can follow us there, always at TOTSCast. We post every single Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I'll see you next week.